This is Cost One. Rachel speaking. Tests are coming here. Tests are coming. We're 1.5 below. Stand by. Two times here, boys. We're looking at 10.5 to 42. Hi everyone and thanks for joining us. Well, even although it's most definitely winter, I'm still sitting on the seafront in Cowes, now though fully wrapped up in my cosy down jacket. The hectic Solent is now pretty sparse, just a few hardy cruisers braving the cold and of course the ferries. We had a 108 miles per hour storm at the weekend. The sea looked amazing. It was like something from the Southern Ocean. Definitely not my kind of thing, but conditions that this month's guest is pretty used to. Our sailor is someone a lot tougher than me. We have history and you'll get all of that from the chat. I knew even 25 years ago that this woman was destined to do something pretty special in the offshore world. Sam Davies is an extraordinary talent. She's well into her preparations for her third Vendée Globe. And if you've come across shots of her new foiling a Mocha 60, you'll have seen she's a real contender. We met her just before she took on the Rolex Fastnet race. And she went on to finish fifth in an impressive 20 strong fleet of a Mocha 60s. And in her own punchy words, deserved more than a fifth place. She's a woman whose happy place is dressed in her full offshore kit, battling the elements. And she's back at it. As I sit here, she's mid-Atlantic competing in the iconic Transat Jacques Vrab. Here is the hour I spent with Sam Davies. One granddad was a submarine commander and the other granddad was a boat builder. My mum used to make roast beef and Yorkshire puddings in Force 8. To be on one of the boats was just beyond my dreams or anything. We had to do a man overboard drill to pick me up in the front of everybody else because we're in the lead. Sam, many thanks for joining me on the podcast. I mean, you're a busy woman. I suspect this year you've spent more nights at sea than you have at land. It's, it's great to finally catch up. It's a pleasure to, to finally um, meet up with you, Shirley, after all the years of sailing we did together as well. So that's pretty cool. Your life, you know, as most people will know, is well established in France now. But you're back in the UK for the start of the Rolex Fastnet race. And this is where you grew up. It's where you went to school, where you learned to sail and race. And I guess where you got noticed. What does it feel like to be back here with your foiling a mocha? Is it, you know, does it feel comfortable or does it feel a little bit weird? Uh, no, it's brilliant. Uh, I would never miss the Rolex Fastnet race. Um, it, it's a... Uh, it's fixed in my calendar and I do everything and make my team do everything to come uh, because, yeah, it's part of my sailing life. And I think the first one I did was, I was, I think I was 19 on, uh, I, I was just remembering actually today on a, on a Sun Legend 41 with Tim and Liz Mitchell, the boat was called Helios and, um, and it was amazing, well, one of the first big steps that I made offshore in my whole sailing career. And, uh, well, it's thanks to owners like that who take young, unexperienced, very keen people on board. and uh, So it brings back memories like that and it's brilliant for me to come with my Imoka, Initiative Care. And um, yeah, she's got really cool foils. And I'm really proud that this year we're, we're coming in kind of mass with the Imoka fleet. And it's not just me and a couple of other Frenchies. It's, there's 21 of us on the start line and we've got our own start. Um, uh, and it, so yeah, it's a really proud moment to, to come back to the UK. I just regret a little bit that I couldn't come earlier and um, go sailing with all my friends and take them out on the boat and uh, well show you show you guys uh, a bit what what life's like on board. But I'm sure I'll find an opportunity soon. I mean, you grew up here, as I said. You know, you sailing with your parents, of course, cruising with your parents, and I guess racing in the keelboat scene here in the Solent. I mean. You're pretty young, Sam, to, to get noticed, I guess, as a, as a real talent, and particularly as a sort of talented bowman. <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember when you phoned me up saying, Sam, we don't know how to take a reef and we can't use a spinnaker pole. <laughs> Can you come and sail with us? Um, uh, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess so. I don't, I don't remember it as being particularly young or, um, or being particularly an, an amazing feat, um, because for me it was just 
uh, what I wanted to do and I just jumped on every opportunity that I had and um, I guess in a way I felt like to start with I was a little bit outside of the racing scene because I didn't race in Optimus like everybody else and I didn't do the, the kind of British youth squad or anything because for me sailing was fun and holidays and weekends and cruising and adventure with my parents and competition was swimming and synchronised swimming and, uh, and it was when I kind of got older that I really realised that I wanted to be a competitive offshore sailor and um, and, um, and yeah and it was really good um, I guess hooking up with you and and the match racing because that's what linked me I guess from the sort of Sunday sailing to more uh, performance sailing and um, learning from uh, you guys uh, what you learned in youth squad and how to race and tactics and strategy and um, and it was kind of thanks to that that I was able to take on a mini transit on my own and do not just the bow. <laughs> we'll come back to all that, but I can't let you get away with uh, the synchronised swimming. I, I thought that was, I was going to bring that up as a secret, Sam. <laughs> I always remember match racing in, um, in the south of France and we're waiting, you know, waiting in the sun and no wind and you jumped in and did this sort of perfect upside down <laughs> manoeuvre with, um, with pointy toes. I mean, it's a bit random, isn't it, for a burly sailor? It's a bit random. Uh, well, I hope I'm not too burly. Uh, <laughs> but, but um, yeah, I guess I try to keep it a secret because if you, you let it be known that you're a swimmer, then you're always the one that has to dive in and take the seaweed off the keel or cut the rope off the propeller. So um, it's a good thing to try and keep it quiet so that you're not the one that has to go in. But when you're sailing on your own, you don't have the choice. Um, but yeah, synchronised swimming was my uh, sport, but that kind of was because... Uh, I grew up in a family that was on the sea and my granddad, one granddad was a submarine commander and the other granddad was a boat builder on Hailing Island, he had a yard. So both my parents grew up in and around boats and the ocean and sailing and they, they had a boat before I was born and so when I was born I was always, uh, I think two weeks old was the, the age, well the age when I first ever was on a boat. Um, People ask me, when, when did you first step on a boat? And I was like, I didn't step on a boat. <laughs> I got my cot got put on a boat when I was two weeks old. And so growing up on a boat, when you start to walk, um, now I'm a mum and I have the same anxiety. Uh, the, the thing you really want is that if your kid falls in, it's going to know how to swim. And so my mum and dad taught me how to swim really early and I love swimming. And so that's how I became a synchronised swimmer is because uh, initially it came through the safety aspect of being a sailing family. It was so rare for me, I'll, ne you know, I'll never forget, I guess, the level of seamanship you had at such a young age. Because the people that I'd gone racing with, like for example, I remember the first round the Isle of Wight race we did. We borrowed a, a Beneteau First Class 8, it was filled with uh, you know, women that we match raced with or sailed small keel boats. And off we went with a paper chart. And we thought, well, we'll keep the island to the left, and we've got Sam with us. <laughs> so what could possibly go wrong? But you were the only person, I think, that I knew in that world who had you know, incredible seamanship skills. Uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of others <laughs> who have seamanship skills. And, um, but yeah, that's, I guess, and especially at that point, that was all down to my mum and dad and growing up on a boat. And when you're on a, on a boat as a family, and I think my parents were really into explaining to me how everything worked and and trusting me or making me feel like they trusted me to do navigation make decisions uh, helm the boat and and understand everything I guess that they transmitted what or their seamanship to me and I learned uh, learned that from them and I guess I learned also my mum used to make roast beef and Yorkshire puddings in force eight um, the, the wind strength didn't seem to make any difference to her as to that life just went on and, and that for me is a real advantage now when I'm sailing quite violent high speed boats offshore is um, just learning that life doesn't change when you're on a boat no matter what the wind is you've still got to eat and look after yourself and, um, and that's how you win races that are more on the endurance side than on the sprint side of things and so yeah it's for, thanks to my parents and um, and, and I guess maybe something that's in my genes. It's a bit harder now to rustle up the Yorkshire puddings. I'm thinking yeah, the name yeah. of I don't can't make Yorkshire puddings <laughs> with a jet boil, but I'm sure you can probably buy freeze-dried Yorkshire pudding now. I haven't found it yet, but... <laughs> I mean, I remember also from that time sailing with me, I mean, you were not only, obviously, you know, incredibly smart and, and talented at sailing, but you could also, 
you could really fix stuff really well. And you know, I guess you know, a degree in mechanical engineering from Cambridge University was pretty helpful even then. And when you look back at your career, Sam, you know, how important has that, has that understanding been, that sort of engineering brain? Uh, really important and I use it every day and, and it's something that uh, for me I couldn't sell as fast as I sell without that I guess base, knowledge base and all um, uh, the way my brain has been trained to think and to not be afraid to take something apart even if I don't have the manual and um, uh, to understand loads on my boat and to work with Anne Claire who's my engineer in our team and she works with, well, at the moment she's been working really closely with Guillaume Verdier who's designed our foils and uh, lots of other people, we're, we're designing a, a new rig for next year and, um, and to be able to fully participate in the kind of decision making side and the onshore side of the design and the evolution and the, uh, I guess the, just the general upkeep of my boat is really important. And, but I, I remember a funny thing of fixing things with you was in the Yingling once and when the something broke, the traveller broke. I don't think it was a very important race, luckily. And the traveller broke, and I remember you go, Sam, Sam, fix it, fix it, fix it. We were going downwind. And so I remember going, undoing my hobbles. It was where we had those hobbles to hike out and unclipping them to run back and, and fix the traveller on the downwind run. And then we got to the lurid mark. And I just fixed it in time, and it was really cool, and you were really happy, and, and I was really proud of myself. Um, and we were like 100% able to go up the beat, and we were in the lead. And, um, and as we went around the, the lurid mark and like dropped the kite and pulled and I pulled the jib in and jumped out on Did my cobbles <laughs> and I just hadn't clipped them back on again so I just jumped straight over the side of the boat <laughs> and we had to do a man overboard drill to, to pick me up in the front of everybody else because we were in the lead. <laughs> One of those memories that comes flooding back. <laughs> it's a good moment. Um, Sam, I'm going to take you back a little bit in time to 1998 when you started sailing with Tracy Edwards on Royal and Sun Alliance, an all-women's team trying to win the Jules Verne Trophy. That's the all-out around-the-world circumnavigation record. Um, you'd have been, what, 24 years old, I'm guessing? You're pretty young. And, you 22, know, how, I think, when yeah, I joined them. 22. I mean, how exciting was that for the, for the young Sam Davies? Uh, it was like a, um, I had to keep pinching myself to believe it was true, and um, it was it was an amazing, it was amazing. I remember when Tracy said, "Yeah, I want you on the crew," and um, it didn't just happen like that. And because I knew she'd been putting together a crew for a couple of years prior to that, and um, having been in the right network and um, and people having noticed me and. Um, and so someone said to me, well, you, you need to send her your CV. And, and I said, well, I'm doing my degree and I want to really, I've got to get my degree. I'm not leaving university before I've got my degree. And um, that's something I've always stuck to. It was really important for me. And, um, and, literally, and Tracy had already had a base crew. She'd selected kind of the core of her crew before they'd even launched the boat. And luckily for me, I think I, I came the day they did their first ever sail. So even the core crew didn't really know how to sail the boat. And, um, and so I remember not feeling so left out or young or stupid um, as I probably would have done if I'd come for that sail a month later and they all knew the boat. And, um, and then I was lucky again because in the end, Tracy didn't find the money for a year um, off, until a year after she'd planned to go. And so that actually worked perfectly with the end of my degree. And so, um, so every, everything was right. And I told her the date that um, I was free if eventually there was a space and she said, oh, well, definitely you can come and try out with us in the Solent, but we're going to see the States and we're going to do a record back from New York, and, but then you can come and try out with us. And, and in the end, I got a phone call from New York because um, one of the crew had dropped out um, and Tracy needed someone tomorrow. And it coincided perfectly with the date of my, the end of my degree at Cambridge. And um, so she, I literally, she called up and said, can you get on a plane in two days time to come to New York? And I was like, yes. So I just chucked all my stuff in my car at uni. Um, I said goodbye to as many people as I could. And, and, and I just set off. Um, and she said, you don't need any gear. We've got all the gear. Just bring your boots and some thermals. And so I rocked up in New York with a pair of jeans and a t-shirt with my boots and my thermals in a, in a backpack. And, um, 
And then the weather window shut. And so we spent two weeks in New York and I had one pair of jeans and a T-shirt and my thermals. Manhattan in your thermals. <laughs> yeah. Great. Um, and, but yeah, it was, it was a very good co coincidence and it was just an amazing opportunity and something. Tracy was one of my heroes because I followed her maiden exploits um, avidly when I was at school. And I think I wore my parents' video recorder out uh, watching the, like, the telly shows of the Red Round the World Race. And I mean, I think we all, we all did, didn't we? I mean, she properly trailblazed the sport for our generation. She made stuff happen. She ploughed her own furrow. What, do you, what did you learn from that time with Tracy Edwards? And what kind of leader, what kind of skills did she have? Uh, well, I think, first of all, what I learned twice from her, and I think without realising, because at the time when she was on Maiden, and she, she did all those exploits, amazing things on Maiden, um, I never even imagined, that for me, uh, being an offshore ocean, so I didn't even want to do it. It was way too scary and far to cross an ocean. And I, I loved the boats, and I kind of wanted to design them and be an engineer and work, be involved, but f to be on one of the boats was just beyond... Well, beyond my dreams or anything. And, um, but I think without knowing it, the fact that she'd done that with her crew um, connected something in my brain or ticked a box that had never been ticked before of, of making me and probably lots of other women in the same, or girls at the same time, realise that there were things that were possible that we weren't even imaginable at that time. And so that was a big thing that I learned from her without realising it. And then, and then for me, it was a, just a dream to, I finished a few years later um, in her crew on a multi-hull to set off around the world. And um, that was just like unimaginable. Um, and what I learned from Tracy was uh, to start with the fact that she gave me the opportuni opportunity and trusted me and um, and what she did wasn't easy, and I think selecting a crew was, would, I don't know how she even managed to do it. Um, and, and we were doing something that was so extreme and so never done before, and we were so inexperienced, um, I would never have dared do what she did. And so I think that's the, like, the bravery and the belief in yourself, and um, in a way you have the same, <laughs> uh, from sailing with you, is the same kind of thing of, uh, this can happen, and I'm just going to surround myself with the the perfect the people I need to make this happen. And Tracy did that, and um, and then so that was like the before and the believe in yourself and go and do it. And then on board, um, what was absolutely amazing was that she then said to us, she said, "Look, I've sailed around the world and I got the money, but actually you guys are all way better sailors than me." And so you manage the boats and the watch leaders, they are the boss kind of on board in sailing way. But at the end of the day, I'm the boss. And so if I have to make a decision, you will listen to me. And, and I think the way she ran the boat was, was really, really good and respectful. And in terms of safety and performance, I don't think she could have, I think that was, there was, it was like the perfect way to do it. And yeah, managing 11 women on a boat in pretty extreme conditions, and now I've done it myself. <laughs> um, I was quite grateful of being a crew member and looking at what, how Tracy did it, and remembering that when then I found myself on Team SCA. Um, because yeah, it's not easy managing a group of people who are all very competitive and have big characters and, um, uh, and, and getting, keeping that going and, and and making it work in terms of like competitiveness as well is it's not easy and yeah she had that skill to do that and um, and yeah I learned a lot from Tracy. It didn't go according to plan did it the Jules Verne dismasted 2,000 miles off the coast of Chile can you remember what that moment was like? Uh, yes, um, that was my first ever real dismasting. It was the first time I'd ever been in the Southern Ocean, so <laughs> to start with, um, I remember there were a few of us who'd never been in the Southern Ocean and um, we were all quite um, intimidated by the fact we were going to be there and I remember we used to really, it, it used to frustrate the ones who'd already been there because we didn't stop asking them, so what's it really like? Are the waves really that big? And um, is it really scary? And just, they, we'd ask them the same questions over and over again. <laughs> and they got fed up with us. Um, but yeah, it was a pretty scary moment. And um, uh, But we were by the time we dismasted, we were an amazing team and we had um, 
just made leaps and bounds on the way we sailed and the way we handled our boat and the seamanship that we had. And um, so it was something that probably if that had happened to us at the start, then it would have just been a disaster. But uh, when it happened to us, we were capable of dealing with the situation that we were in. And um, and so in, in a way, it was, it was scary for a, a few seconds, but once we realised that no one was hurt and that, yeah, the, well, the boat's not going to sink and we've got means of getting to the other side anyway, um, then it's not so scary. It was just so utterly, utterly, utterly devastating because we were on the record pace and from being a crew that was so inexperienced and people didn't even... Um, they, people just laughing at us and and when we dismasted and and fair enough we dismasted but it wasn't really through um, it wasn't through a mistake that we made it was just un, unlucky and <laughs> lots of good people have dismasted and uh, including myself since um, but in a way we proved ourselves and, and I think when you have something like that happen to you you go in a matter of seconds from one kind of adventure to a totally different one and um, I think we all realised in the two weeks it took us to get to land and luckily we had those two weeks to uh, kind of reflect on what we'd done and what we'd achieved and and uh, and to get over the the disappointment um, then we realised that actually what we'd achieved was amazing uh, anyway to have even done that and um, and that we were capable and that we could all go again and, and I think it's thanks to that experience that a lot of Tracy's crew went, then went on to do amazing things and, and I think that's the proof of how well Tracy picked her crew in the first place. I guess for, for women sailors of our generation she really, she really made a huge difference yeah. and as you said you know, the, a massive catalyst for, mm. for lots of careers in the sport. Anyway, back from that, and I'll never forget this, Sam, we were in Miami, you were in the early days of the Yingling, uh, just being picked for the Olympics, we didn't know much about it at all, and um, I could tell something was really bothering you, and we had a chat, the chat, <laughs> which obviously you've been thinking about for a while, and you told me you were you were over it. Being a bowman on a three-person keelboat, hiking like mad, every wave breaking over you, doing the same thing over and over again, day in, day out. Olympic sailing, I guess, in all its glory right there. You know, looking back, why was that such, such an easy choice for you? Because, why? Uh, yeah, I'm an offshore person, and I think for me the... Um, the it, a lot of people find it really hard to believe. They're like, but you, you could have gone to the Olympics. And, and I remember you said that to me. And, um, and I was like, but I just don't want to. And, you know, that's not this. And, and, and I could see from the t all the time I've been sailing with you that there was no way that you would win if I was with you because I, it wasn't my thing. And to, to win, uh, and it's like sailing offshore, if you've got to be 100% motivated on every single day and, and, and that's what I am for doing what I do um, offshore and, um, and you have to make a lot of sacrifices and, uh, and, and for me uh, the one thing that made me make that decision or helped me make that decision was it, when you see Shirley on the podium with her gold medal are you going to regret not, not having been with her and, and I was just like no because when I see her on that podium with a gold medal, uh, I'll just be happy to have watched and happy to have been part of the, the process of getting there. But um, I think, yeah, there's no way that you would have got there with me because I didn't, I didn't have that, um, that drive to, to be an Olympic sailor. And um, I had to go offshore and I, I couldn't come home and have a shower every night. I needed to go out and be away and not see land on the horizon. and. Um, uh, and the whole kind of the development side and the engineering side, the technical side of the Ingling and One Design Sailing was so, um, I enjoyed that so much and the competition side I enjoyed so much but um, actually the whole Olympic thing didn't, didn't entice me at all and so I was sad to miss out on improving and becoming a better regatta sailor and racer and 
um, on the technical side, but um, uh, yeah, I just couldn't survive without going offshore. <laughs> 3,000 spinnaker drops <laughs> in a week was, was, definitely not, was definitely not your thing. I mean, quite quickly, Sam, solo sailing became your thing. What was, what was the draw of that, looking back, sailing alone? Uh, it's a good question and I think it's a bit of a drug and you don't really realise and, and you, it's hard to explain to any, anyone who hasn't done it before um, and uh, it's and it's all about going out there and when you do an offshore single-handed race you do it totally yourself and you have to do everything so you are the bowman and you're the driver and you're the tactician um, and you're the trimmer and and so when you finish and you to start with, it's just making it around the course, and you have just this immense sense of satisfaction to have, have done it, and you've done it all yourself, and and uh, it's just a challenge to get around, and the challenge to survive, and switch, especially when you have like a, a breezy race, and um, and when you're out there, you have the sleep deprivation challenge as well, and you don't believe that you you can't you can do that without sleeping, and then you suddenly discover that your body is capable of doing things or going way beyond the limits that you thought that you had. And uh, once you start making it around the course and getting across the finish line, then you're like, oh, maybe I can try and be competitive now. And, and then it's the, the, the next challenge. And then when you do win races offshore and yeah, you, you did it yourself and you're like, yeah, I did that. And, and then when you mess up, it's your own fault and there's no one to blame and there's no one to say, oh yeah, but they they did this or they made the wrong decision it's no i did it and i i messed up and 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 you learn so fast because you learn by your mistakes and so you have to go out and train a lot so that you don't make the mistakes during the races and you make them before but um uh yeah it's that challenge of having to master every single aspect of of racing and of, of sailing a big machine offshore and and now when I, I've done the Volvo as well and I'm really lucky to have been fully crewed sailing around the world and single-handed sailing around the world and it's when you race on a boat with the Volvo or the ocean race now um, and then you get to race with people who are experts in every single discipline on board and you learn, I learn so much from every single one of the crew I sailed with because they were all experts and better than me at every single division that they had on the boat. Um, but when you're a solo sailor, you can't expect to be that good at, at everything because you have to do everything. And so, yeah, so it's about finding that balance and trying to be as good as those people as you can, but knowing that you've got to do everything and, and finding the priorities to get which bit you've got to spend time working on to make your performance get better. In the changing rooms, people are knocking on my cubicle whilst I was getting changed to have an autograph. Dismasting an Imoka single-handed is something that um, you can't train to do that. To win the Vendée Globe is just, it's almost beyond even imagining. With something like, like the Vendée, you know, it, it's hard to sail, but we often talk about, you know, the race to the race, to get to the start mm. line. It's, it's a massive undertaking to get to that start line. Just think back to those Roxy days, you know, how hard was it? pooling a, a Vendée Globe campaign together. How did you approach that very first one? And I guess, how, how tough was that? Uh, when I look back on it, actually, the Roxy campaign was, it was easy, easy in inverted commas, because I was lucky enough to have um, Roxy come and headhunt me. Cool sponsor. Yeah, a really cool <laughs> sponsor. And so it's very rare that a sponsor comes and knocks on your door and, say, and says, I want you to do a Vendée Globe. And um, for sure, the leading up to the Von of your first Vendée Globe is really hard because you, you can't learn how to do that in a textbook. It doesn't exist. And you, you can ask the experienced guys and the ones who've done it before and try and get their tips. And, and I did a lot of that. Um, but then after Ro the Roxy campaign, then I wanted to do the Vendée again. And, and I thought after her coming forth in, in 2008, and we did a, I did a really good campaign in the media with Roxy and it worked really well. And, um, and we had a lot of success, and that, but they unfortunately couldn't carry on um, for financial reasons. And I thought it'd be really easy to find another sponsor, and um, and it's just not. And that's when you realise how hard it is. And, and for sure, when you you go out there and you cross the start line on the Vendée Globe, you, some well the second time when I had my project Saviel, and it took me three years and lots and lots of 
uh, knows and lots and lots of um, sponsorship proposals and people helping me and trying to find money and in the end I had to I had to create a whole company and raise private money to finance to buy the boat which I actually bought myself because um, there was no way we the, with the sponsors I'd found that we could have financed it any other way and but I didn't have the money so it was a bank loan and um, and investors who helped me buy the boat and I just felt like I'd won the race just crossing the start line and and you so you go out the channel and you cross the start line and I just had this amazing feeling like yes I've done it and then you realize that oh no now I've got to sail around the world you, you sense that yeah the, I mean I, I love the Vendée start and you sense that, don't you? There's such a massive relief. Everyone who's who's on that dock, ready to go. You just can't believe you're there. And you're just like, oh, I can't believe I'm about to do the one-day globe. And, and you don't believe, and you have to pinch yourself over and over again. And though I do remember the first time I did it, and that's the, with Roxy, the, that feeling of, oh, my God, I'm going to do the one-day globe. And being so overawed. And luckily with, um, with Nick Maloney, who'd done it the four years previously with Scandia and they were my sponsor too so I'd kind of experienced his Vendée Globe with him and I was lucky enough to be in the in the channel Les Abdelone as he went out on, on a spectator boat and with with all the Scandia sponsors and um, and I remember the emotion of the channel and I was just overawed by it and and then when I realised I was going to do the Vendée Globe four years later with Roxy these memories of the channel came flooding back with Nick with Scandia and I was just like oh my god I'm just not going to survive that. It, I'm going to be a wreck. It is so emotional. I mean, what was that like the first time? And so, but I was so worried about it, and it was something that stressed me out so much. And I, and I worked really hard with a coach, um, Tongi Le Gletin, who's he's still one of my sailing coaches in France. Um, and I worked really hard with him on this kind of sport, the sail trip, was the performance aspect. Um, and um, I was so ready with Roxy when I, to go. I just felt so confident and just peaceful, and I knew that it was I was going the Vendée was just going to be so cool and fun and I was ready and I'd done everything and, and I remember talking to him and he was like now what is there anything you're stressed about or worried about and I was like well no it's yeah actually the start and until then I explained to him and I said you know the whole channel going out the channel I'm just not I don't think I can do it you know it's just gonna I want to get a good start but that going out the channel is going to just destroy me mentally so much I'm just going to mess totally mess up the start and I'm not very good at starts anyway because that's not my uh, speciality, that's yours. And, um, and so he said, look, well, we have to do a practice one. And so I made my team do a practice, go out of the channel. And so about 10 days before the start, we did the whole timing from how, who was gonna steer the boat, who was gonna let which mooring line off and um, with the rib and how, when they were gonna get off the rib. And we did the whole thing through going out the channel and there was no one in the channel at this point, but I had to do like a dry run right to crossing the start line and then getting off onto the rib and pretending that I was going to go off on the Vendée Globe to get rid of the nervous, the bad nerves. And, um, and that was what made me survive. The, and, then, and then I actually really enjoyed it. And I thought it was great. It was such fun. Um, and I was so grateful that Tongi had made me do that. For, for our listeners who haven't been to a Vendée Star, <laughs> I watched it on the television. It, it's an incredibly emotional moment. It feels like all of France has arrived in, in Le Sabdelon on, on the West Coast. And um, it's mid winter, you know, November. And you know, tens of thousands of people all cheering for you as you, as you come out the, the canal. It's, it's an amazing moment in, in sport. It's incredible. And people, they, they, to get a place on the waterfront, they will, they get up at four, in, they go there at four in the morning to be sure that they're going to get on the front row. And um, yeah, it's incredible. And, but when you, you know, when you go out, and I do remember, you, you see the sailors' faces and they're people I know really well. And it's not the same people because everyone's just trying to hide the emotion or kind of block the, the emotion of the day. And, um, uh, uh, but it's hard because you want to kind of enjoy it because you never know if you'll ever get to do it again. So let's talk about that 08-09 Vendée. I mean, you caressed that old boat around the planet and finished, you know, an amazing fourth in your very first Vendée Globe. You know, how much of an achievement did you feel that was? Uh, it was huge. Um, I think on paper, before the start, um, I was the 26th boat in terms of boat speed. There were 30 entries. And so I was, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try and get in the top 10. Maybe I might be able to get 10th. 
Um, but I guess I was thinking more in the performance side and at the end of the day, sort of statistics show it and I'm part of them now, is that it's pretty much 50% of the starters finish. And that's why there's so many people in the channel when you leave, it's because the people come there because they know that they might, they're going to see boats that they might never see again. And um, uh, so, f yeah, it, it was a huge achievement. And for me, I just wanted to get round, and, but I wanted to do it and be proud. But yeah, I never imagined that I'd get inside the you know, ninth or tenth place. But it was a really tough year and um, there were 30 entries and I think um, there were only 11 of us who actually finished. So we were way worse than the statistics. Um, the weather off the start was really, really bad and a lot of boats broke very, very early in the race. And there were a lot of new boats that were maybe not quite tested enough um, who, who'd been launched maybe a bit too late and didn't have enough time to to kind of uh, make sure that they were they were strong enough and um, and so yeah it was kind of a, a fourth place there was a bit of default but the Vendée Globe that's what it's about it's to win you have to finish and um, yeah I was really proud at the end and especially the way I sailed in the Southern Ocean because um, I think I learned a lot about um, that I could actually sail faster and push the boat harder and um, and I was kind of impressed with how fast I'd sailed around the Southern Ocean. Four years on, Sam, the 12-13 Vendée, we actually came down the canal with you this time. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's so emotional. And I'll never forget, you were, all, you were laughing at me for crying <laughs> the, whole, <laughs> the whole time. Um, but, you know, all the way along the walls, they were chanting, Samantha, Samantha. I mean, it was such a moment. I'll never forget that. By now, you are absolutely a household name in France. What was, what was that like, coming back to that environment? Uh, it, it was amazing. And for me, I think that was the race where I just felt like I'd been fighting this battle to try and get there. And it was really hard. Uh, and, yeah, made a lot of sacrifices, uh, I guess financial ones as well as human ones, um, to get there. And, um, and it was just, I just, yeah, I felt like I'd won. And... But it was also because it had taken so much energy to raise the money. Um, uh, looking back on it, I think it, it was I was in a lot of a, hard, a lot harder situation than in two thousand and eight. Whereas I, I had the experience, the extra experience, so I wasn't worried about setting off around the world. But there's no way that I had that kind of calm feeling of I've done all the training and I've, I've had all the time to prepare this because it took so long to find the money and the project was much more last minute. Um, um, but having said that, I was so glad to be there and, and I think the public was glad I was there because I was the only girl, I was the only woman in the race and but that put an extra pressure on me, I guess, in terms of the media as well because whereas with, in 2008, uh, there was Dee and I, we were, there were two of us and so we, used to, we kind of shared the, the female, <laughs> you're a girl doing this media and we kind of shared that and we were good friends and, um, and so we kind of, dealt with that pressure together um, then uh, there was just me and um, it, it, and it's hard because so it's just so nice because people just want to encourage you and it's great to have so many fans but um, when you're trying to prepare a little bit last minute around the world race um, and then at eight o'clock in the morning there's people knocking on your door and you're in pajamas eating your breakfast and they're knocking on your door to have an autograph or chasing you into the toilet in the swimming pool. I remember people knocking on my cubicle in the, when I was, I'd gone for a swim and people, in the changing rooms, people were knocking on my cubicle whilst I was getting changed to, to have an autograph. Um, it, it was a bit strange. Um, but that's just the amazing thing about sailing in France. And, and, and I can't complain about it because it's, that's what makes, that's the magic of the Rondé Globe and, and that we are there and, and the public can touch our boats and... Um, uh, yeah, it, it was. It, it's fantastic, and and it's going to be like that next year as well. With, and probably even bigger with Initiative Care. So, uh, and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Five days out, your mast broke. Your race, your hopes, over. I remember calling you for for the CNN show because we we'd featured you before the start, and you just finished sifting through all the damage. I think it was the first time ever, Sam, that I'd seen you cry. And I remember it now, your face just racked with exhaustion, I guess, and, and disappointment. I mean, describe 
how tough that moment was. Well, first of all, the dismasting uh, Nimoka single-handed is something that um, you can't train to do that. <laughs> and um, I can train for pretty much everything, but um, you don't go out and practice the dismasting. And, and it's something I, I'd always seen happen to others and think, oh my God, how can you, how can you do that? And how, how do you get out of that when you, you're on your own? On, and my name's not Yves Parlier, he's the only one that managed to save his mast and put it back up and finish the Vendée Globe. But um, just to get, to get your boat back to shore safely um, uh, is something that I, was, I dreaded. And, and you do think about how you do it and we're prepared to do it and we've talked it through with those that have done it before. But until that happens to you, you're just like, oh my God, how can I manage to cut free a 28 metre mast in four metre seas and 35 knots of wind and, and obviously at night because that always happens <laughs> as, as night falls. Uh, so the first part is the, um, you can't believe it's happened to you, but your race becomes then, just like I said earlier with, the, with Tracy, your race just becomes an adventure and a challenge of, for survival and to get back to shore. And um, so the first few hours are, are filled with adrenaline and you don't really think about the race or the consequences, um, you're more in the action. And it's, then it's when, once you've managed to save your boat and, um, uh, and save the bits you can and, and cut the rig free without, without um, injuring yourself um, and get to land. And luckily for me, I wasn't too far away from land. Um, and then you realise, and, and that's how it's, it's so disappointing. And, and I think it, that was even harder because it had been so hard to get there in the first place and so many people had helped me and I just felt like I'd let all those people down and, 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 and it had been so hard to get to the start and I was just so looking forward to sailing around the world because I loved that bit. <laughs> and I'd done all that hard work and got through the, the finding a sponsor and getting a project together and, and being on the start line in time and qualifying and, and I was just looking forward to that, like the holiday. <laughs> inverted commas of the good bit of sailing around the world and even that got got ripped away from me and 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 that was really really hard and and I think the I probably would have had a total depression depression and the only and the luckily the good thing for me was that um, I'd just become a mum about a year ago and I had a little boy at home and luckily I think that was um, if I hadn't have been a mum and I didn't have a little baby at home then then things would have been a lot, lot harder. Well, not only did you have a, a little baby at home, but quite quickly you had opportunities with SCA, an all-women's Volvo Ocean Race team. Let's talk a little bit about how that came uh, about. Um, yeah, well, looking back, how did that all happen? Uh, well, actually, I'd been approached by the team before the Vendée, and, and I just told them that... Um, that I couldn't even think about that because I was, I was 100% focused on the Vendée Globe, so uh, they'd just have to wait until after the Vendée and maybe, but I wasn't really, a, I was more into Vendée Globes than the Volvo Ocean Races and, um, and, and so, and maybe the dismasting in, in the Vendée um, helped me get back into that project because um, I, once I dismasted, all I just wanted to do was go back out sailing again because in a way, I didn't want to scare myself away from doing that kind of project again because I was so disappointed with what happened. And, um, and it was a bit like, uh, I need to get back out there as quickly as possible to, to get back on the, kind of back on the horse and, and not scare myself away. And, and, so the, and I knew that the Team SCA, were, they were starting sailing the Volvo 70. And so I just called Richard up straight away and I said, look, um, I've changed my mind. <laughs> I'm back early, can I come sailing with you? And, uh, and totally honestly saying, look, I just need to go sailing because um, what's just happened to me was really bad and, and I can't bear sitting at home watching all the others sail the Vendée Globe. I need to get out on a boat so I can forget about the Vendée. And, um, and so, so that was how I got into <laughs> the Volvo. It was, it was more um, not really out there to desperately try and get on the boat, it was more just to go out sailing and, um, and enjoy being on the ocean again and forget about sponsors and projects and, and investors and, and raising money and managing teams and, and just 
just not worry about all that and go sailing. And, and that was the amazing thing about that project was because there was other people to worry about all that and we just went sailing. I mean, Sam, you're never happier than when you're, than when you're on a boat. I mean, <laughs> there's always, always a massive grin. I remember with that project, they were really late to pick a skipper. It wasn't like anyone necessarily obviously you know, rose to the top to, to be the leader of that project. Um, and eventually they picked you. And I always felt perhaps that you were slightly reluctant. I mean, it's a massive role in the Volvo Ocean Race. It's not just about sailing and leading people, is it? It's a, it's a huge undertaking. I mean, now a little bit of time's passed. What's, what's your thoughts on, on that role and, and that time in your life? Uh, yeah, and you're right. And I was reluctant, and it was something I said to them. I said, look, there's no way I want to be a skipper. And especially after what had just happened to me in the, the Vendée, and I just wanted to go sailing and not have really much responsibility. Um, and, um, and so, and I'd said that to, to the guys, and, um, and so they'd taken that on fully. Um, and I think that worked with them as well, because they wanted to see, choose all the options and not necessarily have a traditional way of putting t a team together. And, um, and we had time, and they had time to find people, and, and they did all the trials. And, um, but then look, looking back on it, when they did choose me to be the skipper, um, it was way too late. And, and I think they probably admit that now because it's really hard for a team to, um, it's, to establish itself. And I, and I think of Volvo, Volvo teams, are, it's rare that a team is like that because quite often the skipper is the boss and they're the one that's found the money and set the project, put the project together. And, and this wasn't the case. And we had Magnus, who was our skipper, <laughs> To be honest, and and it, and it was Magnus who was the skipper, and and very sadly for us, he passed away quite early on in the project, and so we lost our skipper. To be, to be fair, and I think if he'd have been there, uh, it would have been a lot easier for me, um, because he probably would have seen that we needed to choose a skipper earlier than we had have done. We're not going to talk too much about the Volvo Ocean Race, but I'm keen just to get a feel for. You know how tough those two years were for for Sam Davies. I mean, it, it's it's an extraordinary, difficult, all-consuming role. Uh, tough and, and just so amazing as well because I learnt so much and from from sailing with um, amazing gold medalists, world champions, experts, expert trimmers, expert bowmen, expert boat captain, and and that's that was amazing as well. And but yeah, the. The, it was really, really hard, and I think everyone that does a Volvo it's, has the same has the same experience. And for sure, the skippers have that extra responsibility. Which so, in it's physically it's hard and physically it's tiring. But I think for the people who who have the extra responsibility, so maybe watch leaders, navigators, and, and the skippers, there's that extra mental. Um, uh, I guess the the stress, the responsibility, and um, the kind of management side is is really really tiring as well in a different way and um, and it took me about a year to recover but I kind of planned that that was going to happen so it wasn't a surprise but it really did take me a year to recover and and um, and yeah I knew that after the Volvo I wouldn't really be able to do anything competitively for for a year after and that was true um, but uh, yeah that I th and I think for me one of the hardest and one of but then one of the most um, satisfying parts was yeah learning to be a skipper and a leader and, um, and with my team who knew we all knew and, and they knew that I was learning and they were learning to be a team and so we kind of did it together and learned by mistakes and um, uh, and I had a lot of help from from the team and then from people like um, the HR manager in SCA did help me a lot in team building as well which was really good and she came to a couple of the stopovers and work with me um, and she's not a sailor at all and but in kind of people management I learnt a lot from her um, and the, one of the I guess one of the things I, which is maybe easy to explain is is the responsibility side and we were sailing in the southern ocean and on the difficult legs and you're responsible for 
getting your crew and your boat across the finish line in one piece. And for me, that was the priority. And it is a race, and we're out there to perform and to try and win. And But as a skipper, you know that you have that responsibility to get everyone uninjured and everyone across the line. And, and, and in that race, and sadly, it, sometimes that doesn't happen, even to this day. And, and for me, that was the hard bit. And when you... You can control how you sail and you make the t decisions as to what sails you put up and when you take the foot off the pedal of the gas. And, um, and so you, you can make those decisions. And, um, but when you've got a really, really competitive crew behind you, um, sometimes when you tell them that, no, we're going to take a reef, um, and they and they think that it's fine, and maybe it is fine, but you don't know, and you don't, and I, there's no way I want to find out the hard way, um, because basically that that means very bad news, and so they're the one, they're not the ones that have that responsibility, so they're quite happy to push, and and that's really hard when you have the pressure of all those competitive people on your boat pushing you to keep pushing, but you have that responsibility to in to be take care of everybody and get everyone to the finish and 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 it's that you're talking about life and not just a race and um and that was what i found difficult was managing to explain that to my very competitive crew occasionally and luckily it was only happened a couple of times but um and i think they they realize afterwards and they after the race and i had a couple of people coming up to me saying yeah okay yeah you're right and maybe yeah maybe i complained a bit too much but there's no way I want to ever wanted to have been in your shoes, and um, and and I think that's the hard, that's one of the hard things, and and that's one of the hard things for the skippers of probably the boats that have less experienced crews, and that's which is what we we were with Team SCA, and um, but it was an amazing experience, and and I learned so much, and so much about um, being a leader on a boat, and and being a leader in general, and. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it was, and I and I think now I say on my boat way better thanks to the two years we we had with Team SCA and through the management, through the learning from the other girls on the boat, and through the learning from the coaches we had, and um, and all the miles we did together. Do you think that addition, I mean, that team, your team, had a a positive effect on on opportunities for women in the sport? Uh, I hope so, and I think from the feedback we had, um, it's really true. And we had so many messages from not just women, in, and not just about women in the sport. Even we had we had messages from women saying, "Look, I saw you and what you've been doing, and and I've been so scared. I know my husband always wanted to go skiing, and and I'm so scared of the mountains. And then I saw what you go, what you girls do, and so I decided to go skiing. And or you know, and people just making." Or, and people sending us messages about choices they made in their career, and so not just about not just in sailing, it was in women in general, and um, um, and, and and that was amazing to realise that we're not just doing a sailing race, and that that we're we're doing something that's changing other people's lives, and 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 that's and uh, yeah, that was so amazing, and that was something that that we really wanted to continue when Team SCA finished and to keep that f all that group of followers and, and kind of the fan club that we had and to try and keep um, everyone in touch and that's how the Magenta Project kind of started um, was, was thanks to that and, and SCA gave the Magenta Project the, the, their social network so that we didn't lose all, the, um, all that following that we had and we wanted just to carry on because we felt like it it had changed people's lives, and they wanted to follow us and see what we were doing, and and wanted, and we wanted to keep encouraging women sailing and women in sailing, and keep moving that forward the best we could with with what we'd learnt with Team SCA. And we often struggle with this subject. We've interviewed you in the past about the opportunities for women in all areas of sailing, and I know. You don't want to be known as a as a female offshore sailor. You're a, an offshore sailor and competitive, you know, at the very top level. It's what you do, and it's what you're very good at. But are the opportunities actually there for young women in our sport? 
Uh, I think they are getting there, and um, and I think right now we're in quite a cool period. Um, not just in well, my I consider my sport as offshore sailing, um, but if you look in the Olympic sailing and now with the NACRA, um, it's normal for there to be mixed crews, um, and all the young people. Um, uh, there's there's already opportunities to be sailing mixed right from dinghy sailing and Olympic sailing and and that's I think that's made a big change and that that was kind of the proof that it worked as you have to force it a little bit and for sure there's a difference because there's been differences in opportunities for men and women in the past and and that's how the Volvo Ocean Race has has done it in the last edition and and I know there was one team that didn't want to have women and. Um, and kind of refused, I think Scallywag, they refused to start to have women to start with and, and very quickly realised that it was a disadvantage to not have. And then as soon as they had Libby with them, I think when the first leg she did with them, they won. So um, there's been little steps forward in, um, in sailing mixed and opening opportunities for women in sailing. And, um, and I think now with the Olympics, um, bringing in the double-handed offshore um, event in the next Olympics, that suddenly opened, or at least in France, I haven't really seen how it's happening in England, but um, in France that's woken quite a few people up and has, there are a, few, a lot of people in offshore racing in the mini and the, especially in the Figaro circuit where sponsors have created projects to boost young people, good sailors, um, to do kind of selection processes to win a campaign for a year and they, these projects have suddenly realised that they're totally sexist and now with the Olympics coming up they need to create the same opportunities for young women sailors in offshore sailing because otherwise there's not going to be any there's not going to be any women to crew the double-handed or it's going to be really um, unbalanced because there'll be a guy who's got loads of experience trying to pick the best kind of girl who's just going to manage to survive offshore um, with them together and and it's not something you can force either because you can't just expect people to jump on a boat and when there haven't been opportunities before, for sure the women are going to have less experience. So it's got to be gradual and it can't be forced and you have to accept that that the guy who's sailing on the boat double-handed is going to probably have more experience than the girl. And um, But if you accept that, then as the years go by, that's going to be less and less frequent and you can have young sailors who are coming in from NACRA or young mixed campaigns and and um, and it's going to be there's going to be more women in offshore sailing I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen but yeah it's something that can't be forced and but I think we're in going we're going the right way and and I think maybe it's never going to be 50 50 everywhere because sailing is a physical sport and it isn't for everybody and it's pro and the kind of discomfort offshore for sure there's probably more guys that can su survive it than than women and there's a lot of women who don't like not having a shower or um, a few creature comforts uh, every three weeks. <laughs> it's a long road to go, that's, that's for sure. We've been chatting for ages, Sam, but um, before you go, I guess I just want... It'd be good to have a glimpse, really, of what, of what you're up to now. Obviously, going for the next Vendée Globe, you're looking in pretty good shape, but it's, it's all different, isn't it? Everyone's got foils. Just give us a little bit of a glimpse into your, into your next campaign. Uh, well, there's a glimpse and there's the, the, there's the foiling side and, and I'm really lucky and I have an amazing campaign and, um, and uh, there's the whole technical side, which is, is fantastic and I think it's going to develop and I think everyone in the sailing world is going to see, see what's happening and I'm so lucky to be involved and, and, and loving it and there's so much to learn and so I think we're going to progress in the, a lot in the next year. Um, and then there's the side that's a bit different and I'm really proud of in my project and I've touched a few times on saying that it's quite a selfish sport and sometimes I wonder why I'm doing it and, and I'm not a doctor and I'm not a teacher and, and now I'm so lucky to have this project Initiative Care and, and just to explain to people in the English-speaking world, because it's, it's quite well known in France now, and it's a really unique project because I have three major sponsors who, um, who sponsor the boat, um, 
But the boat, uh, the whole project is to raise money for a charity, which is called Miss Naturology Cardiac. It's a charity that um, saves lives, um, that saves lives for kids who are born in poor countries who, who have heart defects, like holes, a hole in the heart, and things that are so simple to fix in now in countries like the UK and developed countries. And um, but in poor countries, the hospitals can't even do those operations, and so those, those kids are condemned to live for really not very long. And uh, but it's so easy to fix them. And this charity brings the kids to France, and my sponsors have pretty much donated all the kind of publicity billboard space of the boat to the charity and the charity doesn't pay any money to my project whatsoever the project gives money to the charity and the more followers and fans I have on the social so all the social networks the more money the sponsors donate to the charity um, and it's and it's really easy because we try and save as many lives as possible and it costs in France it costs 12,000 euros to save a life it's a fixed fee that the charities are negotiated with the hospitals um, per life per kid and so it's easy for us to say okay we want to raise we want to save 20 lives uh, i think in the next jack vab we're going to try and save 25 kids lives um, and it doesn't cost the public any money um, and it, the better we do our job the better we sell and the more people follow our project so the better i communicate and send some videos back and share the project um, the more likes we get and then the more euros our sponsors put into the piggy bank to to the charity and it's just an amazing project and, and I'm so proud to be part of it and um, and so that yeah that's the whole kind of uh, um, the the whole I guess com communication side of the project and it's it's a great charity and there's a there's an amazing buzz we were at the start of the the to Ram and there's this whole energy I guess around a grand your campaign and mm. uh, there's kids everywhere and it it's it's a really fab vibe. But next year it's it's a race. Yeah, <laughs> it's a big race. Um, I just wonder when you when you think about it, you know, can do you think you can you can get yourself in a position to win the Vendée? And I know so much has to line <laughs> up. All the stars have to align to make that happen. But you know, what would it mean? Uh, I think um, to win the Vendée Globe is just um, it's almost beyond even imagining because. Uh, I guess maybe with my statistics of finishing one in fourth place and having finished in fourth, I've proved to myself that I'm capable of winning for sure. And um, um, and then having abandoned the race after only seven days um, puts everything back to reality of, yes, to win you have to finish. And and for me, I have to finish this one day globe. And, um, and that is, for me, that's, I'm not just out there to win in no way. And... So yes, there are some compromises that I will make to be sure that I finish the Vendée Globe. But I'm really lucky to have a boat that's competitive and a budget that can um, make or keep my boat as competitive as possible. And, and now with the foils, it's not just about um, having a brand new boat. And foils have, have made boats a little bit more um, recyclable in a way. And so Initiative Curl will be 10 years old when I start the Vendée Globe. It's a bit like when I had Roxy, which was an old boat. But now, thanks to foils, it's not the hull shape anymore. And so having been able to have a budget and to develop new foils this year, we've been able to kind of leapfrog a generation. Um, and hopefully I'll be able to keep Initiative Curl as competitive as all the last generation boats, like um, such as Metro Cock, Bureau Valley. Um, that's the, that's my goal at the moment is to try and get to their level and maybe leapfrog them a little bit and um, and then just see how close I can get to the new boats and and that's all a bit of a mystery at the moment because we haven't seen apart from Shirelle we haven't seen any new boats out on the water so we're going to start lining up with others for now and um, and for me the the philosophy of the project is to finish and is to be um, as competitive as possible um, without taking any risks and um, and then to be as proud as I can at the finish and to just get to the finish line saying yeah I did everything I could and um, and I think if I do that for sure the podium is accessible and and that's that's the way I want to, I don't want to say I'm out there to win because 
I think to say I'm out there to win, you say you're going to be taking risks, too many risks. Um, I think it's possible to win, but I'm out there to finish and I'm out there to be as competitive as possible. Sam, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat. Thanks so much for your time and best of luck, well, not just for next year in the Fonte Globe, but for um, the Rolex Fastnet race, which you're about to start Well, no, tomorrow. I need to go and do some shopping to buy some, buy some fruit for, <laughs> for the race. Thanks for your time, Sam. Thanks, Shirley. It's been great catching up. I hope you really enjoyed Sam. To me, she seems more on it and better prepared than ever. Her Vendée adventure starts next November. And if you've never been to a Vendée Globe start and you can get yourself to Northwest France, do it. I've been lucky enough to beat a few now and every single time it gets me. Goosebumps, tears, it's emotionally exhausting, but it's one of the greatest spectacles in sport. Well, please keep the feedback and the reviews coming. I'm easy to find uh, at Shirley Sale on Instagram and Twitter, just me on Facebook, or send an email podcast at shirleyrobertson.com. We've got some great characters and some incredible stories to tell next year. So if you're liking what you hear, please leave a review or give us a like. Next month, we're with Kyle Langford. The Aussie sailor may be only 30, but has already rocked the America's Cup and Ocean Race world and is fully in demand. We talk to him hot off his $1 million payday at Sail GP and ask him just how did he get so good. As usual, a big thank you to Tim at Vertical Films for producing this edition. And until next time, thank you so much for listening. Have fun on the water and sail safe, everyone. This is Cup One. Rachel speaking. Cups are coming here. Cups are coming. We're 1.5 below. Stand by. Two dives here, boys. We're looking at 10 five and 42. This is Castle One standing by. Out. Oh.